Once upon a time, our national pastime had nine innings, a long season, a pastoral setting, and the worship and appreciation of the boys of summer. Today, that pastime has been replaced by 60 minutes of intense violence, with words like blitz and gridiron, where once stadiums had an ambulance standing by for fans that might need a medical emergency. Today, the ambulance is there for the players, whose concussions and broken bones and worse are the norm. What's worse is that it's a game that children want to play. I guess we shouldn't be surprised that a culture that reveres bullets and burgers would turn to football as its new national pastime. Put more succinctly, is football driving the decay of our culture, or has our culture provided the perfect storm for the explosion of football's success? Former sports journalist Steve Almond takes a look at the decay and corruption that is football today, a sport perhaps more in need of a warden than a commissioner. The book is Against Football, One Fan's Reluctant Manifesto, and it is my pleasure to welcome Steve Almond to the program. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. It's fair to say that you were, and, and maybe still are, a football fan. You, you started out very positive towards the game as you, as you viewed it over the years. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, um, I'm a devout, I feel a little bit like an alcoholic, you know. You never <laughs> stop having the desire for drink. So, you know, to say that I'm no longer a football fan is not accurate. I still love the game. I still love everything that's beautiful and dramatic and stirring about it. I just, over the years, have become so troubled by its many forms of moral corruption that I finally had to kind of make an apostasy. What wasn't there in the earlier days of football in terms of the things that have been corrupted about it? Talk a little bit about the things that you loved about it, first of all. Sure. Well, football, I think, is um, it, it, it hits the sweet spot, you know, in terms of the American psyche. Uh, when we move from being a pioneer culture, an outdoor culture, into cities, especially around the turn of the Industrial Revolution, um, men in particular felt very confined, emasculated. They weren't in touch with the sort of manly labor and virtues that had defined them. And so they turned they turned to sport for that, and specifically to football, which was the most visceral way of really expressing that kind of primal aggression. At the same time, as it's evolved, partly to eliminate its brutality, you know, in 1905, there was an effort to actually ban the game. Many colleges banned the game because it was so brutal. Eighteen young men had died, you know, some of them prep school boys. So there was a concerted effort uh, to, to say this is too brutal a game, and so they reformed it. The forward pass was included, a neutral zone, more downs, and so forth. The game became more ornate. It spread out. It became more densely strategic. And over the years, it has continued to become more and more elaborate and strategic, and more and more really like sort of it has followed the same track as warfare. And it combines that ultimate test of sort of courage, of valor, the regeneration of our spirit through violence, stuff that I think is always threaded through American culture and the American psyche with an incredibly stirring narrative. As a writer, I can say there's no game that is so effective at creating suspense, at swinging momentum from one place to another, at sudden moments of grace and heroism emerging from the chaos of masked bodies. You know, Barry Sanders breaking through the line. He sees a hole that nobody else can see. He cuts at an angle that nobody else is capable of, and suddenly he's dashing in the wide open. It reconnects us to those intuitive pleasures that we encountered in childhood of the body in motion, the miracle of the body, running, leaping, catching, throwing. So there are all those things that are beautiful and true. I think of football as like an intricate form of art in its best moments. 
And the problem is, the real catch is that it's all these other things that are, I think, much more corrosive to the national soul and to our individual sense of morality. Um, you know, America's very good at separating those two things, trying to cut the connection between our pleasures and a moral interrogation of the costs of those pleasures. But at a certain point for me, after 40 years, I could I could no longer do that. It was time to really look at the dark side of football as well as the spectacle. And as you've looked at it from those early days and those romantic notions of it to what it is today, can you find, can you identify a kind of tipping point when it became what it is today? I don't think there's been a single tipping point. What I think there has been is a careful management of the industry and a very careful manipulation by the promoters of the game to make it more and more exciting. And they realized that they had a game that was deeply appealing to the men of the country. And I guess one of the great innovations of the last 20 years or so is that Roger Goodell and Paul Tagliabue before him realized that the game was so big that the, you know, it was already so big with men that the way to increase the audience was to try to get the casual fan, uh, fan more involved and to get women involved. You know, put pink cleats on the players and whatever other uh, kind of gimmicks they use. The problem is that the, the, the basic more, you know, physics of the game and the, its popularity is caught up with football. We now see what happens to the players years down the line. The junior Seau's of the world are big, huge celebrities. He's one of the most famous linebackers in NFL history. And when he takes his own life uh, and you know shoots himself in the chest specifically so that researchers can look at his brain and they find, sure enough, that the reason that he was suffering suicidal depression and mood swings and memory loss was because he had dementia and that the dementia was directly related to all those hits that he took as we were rooting him on during his playing career, you suddenly have a huge moral problem. But for the NFL, I think as a big business, they look at it as a PR problem. And that's their job. You know, the NFL is a $10 billion a year industry. They have their corporation. They have a cash register where the rest of us should have a conscience. It's really, ultimately, the book is arguing it's on us fans to recognize that we're the ones consuming not just the violence, but whatever other values football instills. There also the nature of the players have changed over the years. Not only bigger, faster, stronger, but the violence has, has permeated every aspect of the game, including those that choose to play it. Well, you can't look when kids are um, told specifically or that they might be good at football, encouraged to play football as a way to instill discipline, hard work, perseverance, all those noble things that we're always trumpeting as a way to justify our watching such a violent spectacle. We would say, well, there are these good values, these good traditional American values. That is true that all those things are being instilled. But we're also sending an essential um, message to those kids. And that message is especially profound because a lot of those kids are from economically vulnerable neighborhoods, they don't have a lot of other options, and they're oftentimes uh, kids of color, African-American or other ethnicities. And the message is your value in society, your value as a person fundamentally, does not reside in the content of your character. It does not reside in your morality or your ability to express empathy. It resides in your physical prowess and specifically in your ability to, to channel your aggression into this game and to deliver a hit that needs to be hit on an opponent so that they don't come back into the game. That is, as the sport has gotten more and more commercialized, 
and more and more popular to people, we really worship those players, especially on the defensive side of the ball, but on all sides of the ball, who are capable of carrying out that kind of violent intent on the field. We don't even call it violence. It's sanctioned, you know, it's really sanctioned violence. But the fact of the matter is when we see a quarterback getting tackled at whatever level and he gets that, quote-unquote, his bell rung, what's happened is that he suffered an assault and he has a minor traumatic brain injury or sometimes a catastrophic brain injury or a knee injury or whatever else. It's a profoundly violent game. And I think when we say that to young kids, we are selecting for savagery and for violence, and we consume it. That's the truth. When you think about why are there parabolic mics on the sidelines that pick up every bone-crunching decibel of every hit? Why do we see endless replays of college and pro players, the most brutal plays during the game? Why Why does the crowd ooh and ah when there's a particularly big hit? It's partly because we've showed up in front of our TV or in the stadium to see that. And fans should reckon with that. If you're going to select for players who are aggressive and savage on the field, you can't expect them to step off the field and suddenly be gentlemen role models. And you especially can't expect that when masculinity and selfhood is defined for them as so aggressive and so violent, and yet femininity by the NFL standards or any kind of college football, what's the woman's role? What's the feminine role? It's ornamental and sexual. Stand on the sidelines and jiggle, basically. When you have a value system that's not even a 1950s value system, it's more like an 1850s value system, that's a recipe for disaster when you define masculinity as aggressive and dominant and you define femininity as ornamental and sexual. Both of them are ultimately dehumanizing, in my view. And I don't say any of this like... Um, with any great pleasure. It's heartbreaking to me. Has all of that then eviscerated, completely eliminated any of that romanticized notion of football that you talked about early on, the things that attracted you to it, the nobility of it, the things that, that might have been there in, in stuff that you wrote about early on or Grantland Rice yeah. wrote about? I mean, has that yeah. just been eliminated? No, it hasn't been eliminated, and that's really the quandary that moral f- that fans are in right now in this historical moment. I think Larry, that we are at a fundamental moral crossroads a- as a country in regards to this game. Maybe in some ways analogous to the way that people felt towards boxing, you know, a hundred years ago when it was the most popular sport. And ultimately, enough people said it's just too brutal to watch two men try to knock each other senseless. It's too bloody. It's too savage. And it didn't disappear. There's still beautiful aspects to that game, valor and courage, uh, you know, putting yourself up against it. It's very exciting to watch that kind of violence. We are inherently, uh, you know, violent animals in some ways. We're always trying to control that, but also express it and feel it in certain ways. It didn't disappear. It just became a more minor sport. Football still is all the beautiful, meaningful things that we feel inside. It just happens to be all these other things. And 99% of the coverage that we see of football is promotional, essentially. Or it's an effort to take those individual scandals, right? One incidence of violence against women after another, or drug abuse, or uh, uh, dementia that they're finding in former players. It's always an a scandal that can be reduced to a momentary thing in the news cycle that we can then forget about and not worry about. What what my book is trying to do is step back from that and say, hold on a second. Football can be two things at once. 
It can be beautiful and elaborate and intricate and deeply meaningful to people psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, and it can also be morally corrupt and bad for us. It can be both of those things at once, and that is the fan's struggle. That is what the fan has to grapple with. My decision ultimately and regretfully was to say, I can't do it. I can't try to be a good dad and a good citizen and a good person and still be a sponsor of the game, which is what you are as a fan. People always try to say, well, they're adults, you know, and they get paid lots of money. That's not the moral equation my book is interested in. The, the moral equation is why are you as a fan watching and what's the morality of you consuming a game that has these values and this physical end result with players? That's the moral equation that I want fans to not. They'll decide for themselves. The book isn't about banning football or saying the government. That's nonsense. This is America. We decide as a culture what our values are and what the forms of entertainment are that we feel like are both going to be entertaining and a refuge from the complications of our lives, but also that we can live with at night. And, of course, one of the things that comes into play here, and it relates to the effectiveness of football on television as well, is this line between sport and entertainment. And that's a big part of, of how it's evolved and what we're talking about. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, listen, one of the things that's interesting about following the history of the game is that you, we have this conception that, oh, you know, these problems are all new. They've never come up before. You know, it's a modern game. It's modern American violent culture. That's nonsense. If you read the history of the game, it's always been fraught with these moral ambiguities and, and you know, forms of ambivalence. You know, for me, one of the most upsetting aspects of football is that it is, I believe, it is really fundamentally antithetical to the educational mission of this country. And there is no reason that we should have football as part of our, as part of our high school system, and especially in certain schools where it's such a huge part of the budget and such a huge part of the subculture of that school, that is fundamentally, I think, working against what the aims of high school should be. There should be private leagues where kids can play football. It's America. If they want to play football, it's okay with their parents. They should be allowed to do that. It just shouldn't be combined with an educa the educational pursuit, which is about expanding kids' minds and hopefully their character and their morality. The same thing is true of college. It is deeply disturbing. It should be disturbing to us that publicly funded institutions, tax-exempt and tax-supported institutions of higher learning and high schools are also part of this athletic industrial complex. Um, you know, we, we try to say that, that players are student-athletes, but the fact of the matter is they are brought to particular schools to entertain us on Saturday afternoons. That is their function. It's promotional and it's entertainment. And we, we're better to be honest about that than cart out the same old set of lies and excuses and rationalizations. But this is the way it's always been. The University of Chicago, when it was first forming, the president was a smart guy. And before there were even doorknobs on the buildings on campus, he was developing a football team because he knew that it would be a boon to the university's finances and its reputation. And, of course, many universities and even high schools to a lesser extent, but certainly at the college and university level, argue that it's football that provides the financial underpinning for all the other sports. Yeah, that's actually nonsense. Um, it, it's, it's actually not true, and it's something that... It's, it's like the line that the NFL puts out about 
you know, we can make the safe sport, you know, the, the sport safer by changing the rules on kickoffs. That's not going to eliminate the subconcussive hits that lead to these brain injuries and ultimately dementia in some players. It's just not. It's a lie. It's a PR campaign. And the same thing is true when the claim is made that football is somehow subsidizing the school. The fact is that schools and sports economists who are a lot smarter and a lot more, uh, who've done a lot more research than me, have looked at these questions and they have said that is a myth. In fact, it costs a tremendous amount of money to have a single football player come onto campus and play, not just in equipment, not just in the, spa- the, the stadiums that are built and the facilities that are built, but all the recruiting visits and all the extra tutoring and everything that goes into the scholarship itself, everything that goes into that player, they pay you know $100,000 for a year to, to support a football player and maybe 10000 for the average student. And some of those costs are passed directly on to the taxpayers. I mean, we, after all, are subsidizing these schools. And we're subsidizing not so, so that they can have a number one ranked football team, but so that they can educate our young people, right? That's our future, to prepare them to contribute to society and America's future. So it's a fundamental compromise of the mission that supposedly college was set up to fulfill. The other thing I would say about this that I think tends to get overlooked is it's really dishonoring the mission of the the promise that we make to any student that we bring to a college, which is we're really interested in you having a life after whatever extracurricular activities you pursue. You know, most college football, and this goes for high school football as well, these guys are not going to make the pros. They're never going to make any money at it. And they spend so much of their time and so much of their bodies, frankly, getting beat up, playing football, preparing themselves to play football, learning all this strategy, being coached up, calisthenics, all the rest of it, that there's not a whole lot left over to develop who they're going to be after their glory days of playing football are over. And that feels to me like a fundamental disservice to those players themselves. We're selling the false dream of economic salvation. One out of 500 high school seniors who plays football is going to make the pros and he's going to play probably for three or four years on average. That is not equality of opportunity that I think American culture, I think we would say that we're about as a country. We're about more fundamental forms of economic, or I should say equality of opportunity. That's not something that's just confined to football, however. We could say the same for basketball in that regard. Yeah, you could say it about any sport. And the point is, I'm talking about football because football is the biggest sport, the one that we support with our fandom and our devotion. Yes, you could say that hockey's also brutal and, you know, people get concussions playing women's soccer. But two wrongs don't make a right, you know. <laughs> if it's, you know, those, those, are, those books, people need to go write books about those pursuits and try to assess what the morality is of our own fandom of these other forms of entertainment, athletic entertainment. My interest was in the biggest, most popular sport in America, and I would say it's more popular by a factor of five than the next most popular sport, which is baseball. You know, the Pew study, uh, the Pew Foundation did this study, said what's what's Americans' favorite sport? 35% said pro football, 9% said baseball, and then 8% said college football. So by those standards, it is five times more popular, and it's certainly five times at least more profitable than any other sport. To what extent has the success of football given all of the violence and all that we have been seeing lately, to what extent is that success now hurting itself as more and more people are exposed to the kind of things that you're talking about? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a lot of why we're hearing about 
for instance, player conduct off the field. The truth of the matter is that athletes do not uh, commit crimes. Professional athletes or college athletes do not commit crimes at any higher rate than the general population. The reason we hear about it is because they're celebrities, and every time they get popped for DUI or drug use or uh, you know domestic violence, we hear about it. It's a headline, and it goes out, and it's yet another momentary distraction from the larger issue, which is we are training young boys to think and behave in these violent ways and to channel their aggression, but to express their aggression. And we're not developing their, the, the content of their character. We're not developing their morality in the same way. We really only value them for one thing. And then we act all shocked when that one thing appears off the field and we give it an inordinate amount of attention. To me, that's ultimately a distraction from the larger consideration, which is as fans, just to break it down, as fans, is it okay to consume a form of entertainment that has so many values, I believe fosters a tolerance for greed, a tolerance for kind of winner-take-all mentality, a tolerance for violence, suppresses our empathy, I believe that there are racist and homophobic values that are fostered by football in very insidious ways that I try to unpack in the Mm -hmm. book. And that doesn't mean it isn't beautiful and meaningful and positive ways, but it is the reality as I see it and try to set it out. And the question really redounds on the fans. We built the football industrial complex. It's not Roger Goodell who's going to solve this problem. It's not an intrepid media. It's individual fans looking at the game for all of its beauty and also all of its moral hazards. And, after, and, and making their own decision about what role they want the sport to play in their life. But because there are other sports and because there are other forms of entertainment, it becomes a self-selecting fan base. That No matter how huge it may be, it's still a self-selecting fan base that, that buys into all of these inherent problems that you're detailing with respect to football. And it's hard to imagine that those fans are going to want to change football. They'll simply move along to something else. Well, look. They said it was hard to imagine that they'd ever, you know, uh, get that, that boxing would ever diminish in popularity. They said it was hard to imagine that we'd ever get rid of slavery, or that we'd give women the vote, or that we'd give, you know, African Americans a vote, or that we would declare that all people should really actually be equal under the law. I mean, moral progress is inconvenient, and it requires individual citizens doing some moral reflection. All I'm trying to do with the book is to say, after 40 years of supporting the you know, the, the football industrial complex devoutly, I and I can no longer do it. And I'm asking other people at a historical moment that it feels like there's a lot of misgivings around the sport. And you're absolutely right. There are there absolutely are people who are just going to say that's a bunch of mamby-pamby, nanny state, yeah, 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 who are going to watch the game, get off on it, eat red meat, drive their escalades, and not worry about the moral costs of their pleasures. That's a part of the American experience as well. To me, it's a decadent, destructive, self-destructive, selfish way of looking at the world, but it is ultimately America, and people have the right to behave how they want to behave, uh, as long as it's within the law. You know what I mean? People are allowed to do things, all sorts of destructive things to themselves, to their family systems and their relationships. The question that the book is posing is, in this historical moment, I believe that there are a lot of fans who feel the same kind of misgivings I do, that they see all these stories, they read them, and if they truly love the players, if you truly love Tony Dorsett, if you love football and you love Tony Dorsett, 
that means that you actually have a little bit of concern for him. And that concern implies a moral responsibility. And that means that you have to take stock of the fact that you wanted Tony Dorsett to be a heroic, valorous athlete. You wanted him to make all those runs and take all those hits. And you have some share of responsibility for him as a fellow human being later in his life as he's struggling with the incipient symptoms of dementia. That's the journey that I want fans to go on. And not all of them are going to go on it, but that doesn't mean it isn't the right approach to, to ask player, to ask fans to start to do that. And I think, by the way, there's kind of an invisible army here of concerned moms and girlfriends and wives and mothers, some of whom are fans of the game themselves, who I think are much more awake and, and, and aware of the moral hazards of the game and have felt for a long time that they do not understand why football is at the center of our culture, a, great, a game that is so degrading to women, that is so inherently violent, that's so dangerous to the people who play it, and that is driven by this engine of nihilistic greed. I mean, the more you look at the economics of the NFL and the NCAA, the more brutal and uh, sort of hyper-capitalist and amoral it becomes. And I myself had no idea sort of what the way in which the NFL and NCAA have been able to convert our devout, idealistic devotion to athletic greatness into an engine of greed. It was just shocking to me, the fact that the NFL is tax-exempt, for instance, or that they are continually taking our fan devotion and extorting politicians in particular cities to take public funds to, to build stadiums that wind up profiting billionaire owners. You know, that stuff is bad for all of us. It's bigger than football. Talk a little bit about the owners, because you do talk about them in the book, and not only their greed, but their endorsement of much of what you've been talking about. Well, it's really, it's, it's just really disappointing when you have a situation like, all right, let's take Art Modell. Okay, he, 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 he's got the Cleveland Browns. That's a fran long storied franchise, and there's so many fans in Cleveland who love that team. He, whether they win or lose, they're very devoted. And he gets an offer from Baltimore because the fans of Cleveland aren't building him his new stadium quickly enough. And the, the offer from Baltimore is perfect. They're desperate for a team because the Colts have left for Indianapolis. This is what the NFL does. They're a monopoly. They're able to basically move teams around and create this panic within cities. So you have city like Houston, for instance, where the owner pays $700 million for a franchise fee to get a new team, and then the taxpayers pay $250 million to build that team a stadium. So now you've got a, you know, a billion dollars, basically, in the pockets of the NFL and their owners, and it's come from an individual owner, but also from the taxpayers of Houston. In the case of Art Modell, he basically said, okay, Baltimore, if you want me to come there and, and start over and have my beloved Browns abandon Cleveland and leave all those fans heartbroken, I'm going to need a good deal. And the Baltimore uh, you know, uh, politicians say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build you a new stadium, and it's going to be you know, $200 million in taxpayer funds, and you can play in that stadium for 30 years rent-free, and you can have the proceeds from everything, ticket sales, the broadcasting uh, you know, broadcast money you get paid for games being broadcasted, luxury suites, everything. Soup to nuts, you get to keep that money. And Art Modell says, I'll take it. Sounds like a great deal. And in fact, he winds up with a franchise that was worth $163 million when he left Cleveland, and it's worth $600 million a few years later because he's made that great deal in Baltimore. And that comes on the backs of the taxpayers. That $200, billion, $200 million that is being invested in building that billionaire owner, a new stadium, is not being spent 
on schools, on infrastructure, on law enforcement, on the sort of things that actually create our cities, make them vibrant, give us year-round sustainable economic development and equality of opportunity. And people don't connect those dots. These owners are so, I think, psychopathically greedy. I mean, if you have a billion dollars, I've always wondered this about people who are extraordinarily rich. If you have a billion dollars, why do you need another 200 million? Don't you want to be seen by the world at large as, as somebody who's philanthropic? Why does a man need 100,000 acres of land? Remember that from the Grapes of Wrath and these two Okies are talking and they say, they say there's a man out there, a farmer, who's got 100,000 acres of land. And the guy who's listening, who's just a dirt poor you know, subsistence farmer from Oklahoma says, why in the world would a man need 100,000 acres of land? I always feel like saying that to the NFL owners. Why do you need to take money from these, from these impoverished cities who so desperately need that money for really important stuff? Why do you need to take that money to build these palaces for your form of entertainment that is basically the circus that comes to town eight or ten times a year that doesn't develop any kind of real economic development? It's just a, a kind of a bread in the circus that entertains people and distracts them from the real problems that major cities like that face. To what extent do you think the NFL, the owners, management, anybody will begin to respond to some of these issues? I don't think they're going to respond until such a time as the fans turn away from the game. That's the bottom line. The way capitalism works is if it still makes money, it's not broken, don't fix it. Only at the point at which fans, individual fans, and fans collectively start to say, I'm not buying into it. I don't believe in these values. They're not good for me. They're not good for my community. They're not good to pass on to my kids. Only at that point are, is there going to be a real reckoning. And um, that's both, I think people get upset to hear that because it puts the moral burden on them, but it's also empowering. We're the ones in charge. There's no magic helmet. There's no magic commissioner. There's no rule change that is going to make these problems go away. What's going to make the problems go away is us looking at them honestly. Steve Amund, the book is Against Football, One Fan's Reluctant Manifesto. Steve, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.